Programming, I think, is a secret sauce for what ensembles do. That's today's guest, internationally renowned choral conductor, Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand, giving you a preview of his own unique approach to selecting repertoire. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand will be the new director of choral activities at the University of Maryland this coming fall. He is founding artistic director of the Jason Max Ferdinand Singers and is currently director of choral activities, chair of the music department, and full professor at Oakwood University, where he conducts the Aeolians. He is a published author and composer with GIA Publications, featuring the book Teaching with Heart, Tools for Addressing Societal Challenges Through Music. Alan, what was the high point for you in this interview? The way he presents curiosity, empathy, and optimism as a package. We've been talking a lot about empathy and how curiosity can lead us to a deeper understanding of people and situations. He really puts this in brilliant terms, but this focus on optimism, optimism about people and situations, even while focusing on societal challenges, it's so important, especially right now. How about you, Steve? Well, I kind of gave it away in the clip I chose for the cold open just now, but his approach to programming kind of blew my mind. And you know that I've spent a long time thinking pretty seriously about programming, and he brought me to think of it in ways that I hadn't considered before. I do want to warn our listeners, Dr. Ferdinand's audio quality is a little rough, but please trust me, you'll get used to it quickly. Alan and I did, and it's so worth it. Agreed. This is a very good one. Stick with it, please. And let's get to it. Jason Max Ferdinand, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Well, I'd like to dig right into your new text, Teaching with Heart, which aims to help us address societal issues in our rehearsals. I want to talk about the specific societal issues component in a little bit. But first, I think some people might hear the phrase heart or teaching with heart and think, well, that's for a certain personality type or I'm not a lovey-dovey, touchy-feely person. So can teachers who don't give hugs to their students learn how to teach with heart? Definitely, yes. Um, I think if there's any teacher that breathes, inhales, exhales, that means that they are alive and, and are key conduits in teaching and then teaching with something within us. And in, for this book, I use the term heart, but you know, it could be mean teaching with, from experience, teaching with soul, teaching from my mind. So yes, definitely can be taught and we all should participate in that exercise. And so to the people who need convincing out there, here's your chance to win them over. Why should music teachers address societal issues in their rehearsals? Why is that important? Because music has always reflected what happens in our society. It has always been through the annals of time. And um, why should it be different now? And it's it's kind of like saying, why should a surgeon perform surgery? He was trained to do that. We were trained to be... Um, the ones who are shaping our future citizens. And part of that process is to address these societal maladies. I, I, I don't think we should ignore them. We have a, a very unique tool. We shape these minds and these hearts for a lifetime. And I think because of that, we should, we should jump in. And we have the tool of music, which I think is an advantage 
in, in helping to address some of these things that we see in society. So that's exactly why we should all participate. And so what do you think makes music such a good vehicle for this, as opposed to maybe some other subjects? You know, it's a universal language one. And sometimes when the very same message just delivered through music, it hits different parts of the brain. I mean, psychologists have studied this, right? That's why music therapy is a thing. Because music just enters our brains in a different type of way as opposed to a lecture or a sermon or something like that. So that's that's why I think music could be such a key conduit through this pandemic as we kind of see glimpses of normalcy or maybe the new normal. We should be prepped and poised to take on that responsibility full-fledged and, and shaping our future citizens. And so to dig into the practical for a moment, as we think about a rehearsal in say a high school or middle school that is 45 minutes long. Yeah. What, what does this look like to you? And, and to the teacher who says I can barely teach the pitches and the rhythms and the text and the diction, how, how should I add all of this in too? Is this something that you include in every rehearsal? I would hate to prescribe a certain formula in terms of time and do this, do that, and it'll work. But I think overall, if you find it could be it could be five minutes of rehearsal, two minutes of rehearsal, and you could use extrapolate text. Look at this short phrase today. Look at another part of it tomorrow, or show on your screen visual aid some sort of relevant material that goes along with the, with the song. One of the teachers on the team. He did a powerful uh, chapter on uh, just us or justice and kind of looked at the social justice thing. And he played a very powerful poem by Mike, uh, Maya Angelou called uh, We Wear the Mask. I mean, the, the poem is about maybe two minutes long, three minutes long. Just looking at that poem and a delivery of it. And she's in tears towards the end of the poem and relating that to a song that has the same type of material. Just showing that alone, I think, creates an avenue for, you know, you could show that one period, maybe the next period, talk about what did you see? What did you feel when I played that? So you could, you could be very creative and find ways of, of intersecting and injecting time within our rehearsal plans. It may not be every rehearsal, but I, I think we need to find a way to do it. And do you have any ideas? Your uh, text is geared especially towards... Uh, choral music in particular, where we have text as, as part of the teaching. Right. What about for our instrumental ensembles? What are some things that, that band, orchestra, uh, keyboard, guitar, that those teachers can steal from your method that work even if the music does not have uh, text as a part of it? Steven, I think um, oftentimes as a choral conductor, you know, we say to our singers, please play that phrase and don't sing it especially if i'm doing something baroque you know pretend you're an oboe in this section or pretend you're a bassoon and i do the the, the opposite when i go to orchestral rehearsal i oftentimes say to the instrumentalist hey can you sing that phrase as opposed to playing it and that right there just gives us a key and lets us into a door of spending a little bit of time on examining the text because if we ask them to sing it play their words right and and that right there will i think will cause them to want to shape and to play a little differently than they were doing before. So I think, I think this, this text, and, and by the way, Teaching with Heart Part 2 is going to be geared towards uh, not just the singers, but we have um, a painter involved in the second volume. We have a dancer involved in the second volume and an actor involved because we realized that we wanted to reach more of the art disciplines. 
So, so this question kind of really, uh, it really leads up into what we are planning for volume two, which is to encompass more of the arts into the, into the entire process. Well, that's wonderful. Do you have an expected release date for the second volume? We are looking at having it ready by February of 23. Very good. Well, we may uh, rebroadcast this episode again in uh, December or January to to get people excited for that. Awesome. So a little bit different question here for you. You said it's no longer enough to teach the notes and rhythms. Students have to have a deep understanding of why a piece of music was written, maybe the societal impact of it. Have you as a teacher ever encountered a piece of music that just on its own, the pitches, the rhythms, is a good piece of music, but there is not a particular story behind it. There isn't meaning behind that particular piece. And I ask this in particular to help some of our instrumental colleagues who might be programming music where there isn't a programmatic aspect behind it. What's your experience with that? And what do you recommend? Do we not program music like that? Or if we do, how do we approach incorporating your method? That's a great question, Steve, and I, and I, and I think I have an answer. It may not be a great answer, but I have an answer. I think even if a piece doesn't specifically um, speak to an issue, I think as human beings, it's important that we find the emotion that we want to deliver because otherwise it becomes bland. And, and sometimes, and to answer part of your question, yes, I have found pieces where on its own, it works. It's beautiful, it, it's very musical. But I think for me and for my ensemble, this is just my experience, it adds a whole nother layer. If we know, hey guys, from bar one to 10, the emotion is like deep sorrow. But from bar 11 to 26, we need to totally switch to the highest point of joy. That's how we approach our music, and, and it works for us. I think it just kind of takes it up for ante. So it's not just about finding the emotional thrust, but also naming it, like naming the emotion, naming the feeling. To what extent should the teacher dictate that? And then how much of it do you, as an educator, try to draw from the students yeah. to name that emotion? Great question, Alan. So, so, so what I do in my experience is, let me go back to my example. If we said bar one to 10, bars one to 10 has, has to be deep sorrow. Most of the times I will give the umbrella emotion, but everyone in the ensemble has to think of their specific uh, time, that specific event, that specific um, experience that brought them deep sorrow. That's one way I do it sometimes. I give the overall umbrella, overall arcing emotion. Some other times I may say to the students, okay, guys, this text doesn't really lend itself to giving us a clear cut answer to what the emotion is. What do you think the emotion is? And I let them decide or have the discussion. And sometimes it gets very, very creative and they may convince me that what I was thinking was absolutely the wrong thing. You know, so students, I think, is an important activity for them to dissect the music and figure out what the music is trying to say. And you know what, Stephen and and Alan, sometimes when the students go through that process, it makes the piece even more powerful because it's not just coming from me. It became a group and a kind of a group think, a group think tank. And and the piece just kind of goes to a whole new level because they owned it and now they feel, um, you know, they have the authority now to deliver what they came up with. So back to the societal issues component of the discussion for a bit. Do you 
ever approach programming from the reverse where you think about the societal issue first that you wish to address and then you seek out certain repertoire for that? Or are you thinking primarily repertoire first and then learning about underlying issues? Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Programming programming is tough, right? Steve, I don't have one way or the other of doing that. It happens all sorts of ways for me. Sometimes I cannot go with songs I want to do and I study, study, study it. And then all of a sudden I find a thread and I say, oh, here's a connecting link to the thing. Or I may say, you know what, I want to speak to this issue. And then I find the songs as, as you said in your first example. So for me, I don't have a prescribed formula. And maybe if I did, it'll make my life easier. I'm not even sure about that, but, but programming is a beast. But programming, I think, is a secret sauce for what ensembles do. I, I think it's in those quiet moments when the conductor spends ample time in finding repertoire that speaks, repertoire that really translates not just to the mind, but to people's hearts. I think that is the secret sauce of a quality choral program, quality uh, program in terms of performance. And um, I, I try my best to really think through my, my programming choices. What societal issues are you thinking about now or programming uh, for repertoire? My thing has been last few months just trying to keep people curious, trying to keep them empathetic and try to keep them optimistic. If I could find music that addresses those three things, I feel like I'll, I'll be doing something. Curious just means that I want to learn something new about Steve and something new about Alan. And I think once I learn something about you, I can become empathetic to whatever you are going through. And then we all need a sense of optimism to get through the things that we are going through now. I mean, geez, huh? think about programming music for audience full of Ukrainians. It makes you think, right? And all of a sudden, you have to learn about that group of people and what they're going through, and you feel the empathy towards them. And then you have to find something that will get them through. So that's my guiding light these days, to be a CEO, to be curious, to be empathetic, and to be optimistic. Do you find that it's easier to be optimistic when you're curious and empathetic? That if you look at things from a distance, or if you look at people or events from a distance, you can not to be very optimistic. And then as you get curious and then you get to know, and then you get to understand, does that make it, does that always make it easier to be optimistic? Great question. It's a great question. Um, sometimes optimism may have to come first, right? You know, I often think about the life of Nelson Mandela. I mean, he was in that jail cell by himself for, was it 27 years? I believe it was. And so in, in that case of solitary confinement, he may not have had many opportunities to learn more about people, which is a curious aspect. But somewhere in his mind and his heart, he found a way to grow that seed of optimism. And I think from what I've read and what I've seen, he then practiced the curiosity and empathy when he got released. So I think it can happen both ways, Alan. For me, it just seems it just seems logical going the CEO way, you know, as well. But life circumstances for people are totally different. So sometimes that order might be reversed or, or kind of moved around. But uh, that's a great question, Alan. I'm gonna have to really ponder on that some more. But that's that's an excellent question. It was a good answer. So it worked out. <laughs> oh, I, I try. <laughs> I'd like to follow up on that. Does the approach of, for example, right now searching for programming that 
encourages empathy, curiosity, optimism. Does that preclude selecting pieces that might be profoundly sad uh, at their nature and maybe don't have a lot of optimism, but are about very sad, overwhelming subjects? No, I, I think we could still include them, but that's the nature of a program, right? I mean, I wouldn't program 10 of those songs, but having one, having material like that in there can actually magnify the songs that provide optimism. So no, I, it doesn't preclude it at all. I think it should be included, but that's the, that's the magic and the secret sauce of programming to really have a complete statement, a, a complete sentiment and not, not one or the other, but, um, People say, wow, this song really made me feel, you know, oof. but then towards the end, I kind of left with, oh, or the other way around. You know, just recently, we, we sang at uh, the Southern Division of uh, ACDA, and I kind of drove the backstage people crazy because as we were walking out, I switched something in the program because in that moment, it, it's, I don't know, it just kind of came upon me, and we actually ended Instead of ending on something that was real kind of up and exciting, we ended with something more contemplative. Uh, we did the uh, There is a Bomb in Gilead by William Dawson. Real simple arrangement, but the message is saying, hey, I know we're going through all of this now, but you know what? Keep holding on. We, we'll get to this, which is a totally different ending. And in that moment and in that audience and in the delivery of it, it, it totally worked. So it was not optimism, but there were moments of contemplation. We all stood a song um, when memory fades, which talks about, you know, the people going through dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, that's, that's a, there's a heavy tune, but in the, in the concept or in the uh, sequence of an entire program, it just all kind of works together. Um, and, and that's the, that's the joy and that's the hardship of programming, just really trying to create that journey and that storyline. So you have a complete sentence by the end of the, the end of the concert. I'm glad you mentioned the conference performance. Uh, many of our listeners are, are aware of the celebrated performances your groups have given at conferences over the years. And I was just talking with a colleague of mine. One of the sort of themes of this podcast that has emerged over our first 10 episodes is this idea of there is not one way or one perfect way for a choir to sound or a band to sound or a violin to sound. Yeah. And, and he was talking about how to get accepted into the ACDA conference at the national or regional level, there is a, an expectation that this is the sound that we want an American choir to have at this particular event. And I'm curious, as we talk about issues like perfectionism and one of our guests who was an expert on including students with special needs, and I said, well, what do you say to the teacher who, who says, well, I would include special needs students in my choir, but then it's not going to sound as good. And she said, they're right. If that's how we define sounding good, is by what's going to get selected for for a national conference they're right and we have to redefine maybe what sounds good right. what is your take on that and especially as you know you're a native of trinidad and tobago you are well aware that around the world there are different sort of standards for what a good sound is uh where do you where do you weigh in on that how much time do you have <laughs> <laughs> for, for you, my friend, we have all the time in the world. Bring it all on. That, that's a huge question. And it's something that uh, it's something that I grappled with coming from a historically black college and university. Let me just kind of explain what I mean. Um, 
The HBCU, the HBCUs in America have, by and large, a certain sound. Let one take the time to go into the technicalities of what that is. And many in that HBCU circle for many decades, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting these from my, from those that I've taught on, you know, taught before me. They kind of felt like they were excluded from that process because of their natural sound. And and I I do understand their point. The the HBCU sound is 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 vast, is huge, is it's, it has a lot of vibrato in it, and it's this, and that's you know, and that's that's what that's what we, we do. Um, and I, I hear what they're saying. I also do understand though that there are certain uh, there are certain errors, there are certain pieces of music that you probably won't want to approach with set style. So for me, it's been a fourteen year journey for me of trying to figure out, okay, I hear, I hear that argument. I hear what ACDA is saying. And I also feel that the ACDA acceptance sound, which is, which is a question here, in, a, in and of itself probably excludes other sounds. And that's the argument here, right? I kind of fall somewhere in between. And where, where I fall is may, maybe the issue is there are certain genres that need to be approached with, with a different sound. Let me, let me give an example. I'll never forget in 2017 when my group went to the uh, Choir of the World competition in Wales. And the first category we sang in was called the folk category or something like that. So we programmed Negro spirituals in that category, okay? Now, the Negro spirituals, you know, we all know where that came from and how it was birthed, right? The sound approach to a Negro spiritual is not the same approach I'll have to some Renaissance motet. So we sang the spirituals with vibrato and full sound. At the end of that category, one of the judges who was from, I believe he was from Poland, he said in front of the masses as they were going down the, the comments of the chorus, he said something to the effect of, wow, this choir, the aliens, they, they are very experienced and clearly they're a very good choir. However, Singing with vibrato is non-professional. That's exactly what he said. And we were like, what? The very next day, we sang in a different category. I think it was a youth category. And we sang some Western canon stuff. Sang it without vibrato. And the very same judge came up to me after and he said to me, oh, you guys can sing without vibrato. So I chose that moment to help educate him. And I said to him, look, dude, in America, you don't sing a Negro spiritual the same way I would sing a bird motet. Like, it's two completely different things. So going back to my point, I think everyone needs to, needs to come to the table and realize that maybe I think what we're trying to say is, that there are certain genres where the vocal production style can be this, and there are certain other genres where the vocal production style need to be this, and not a hard, fast one or the other. I think it needs to be mixed. And I, I tend to fall in that, in, in that camp. Some may disagree, some may agree, but that, can, that approach works for me, and I believe that truly, you know, that's probably what helped us get accepted to sing for the conference in 2019. And, and then what you heard on stage in 2019, hopefully kind of showed what I'm saying exactly. We did some Bach, but then we turned around and did 
you know, the last piece, the promised land, which had a, a there was a section in the middle. We, we just turned on the vibrato. We just, it, 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 it wouldn't sound right any other way. But so hopefully people realize that, you know, we could talk about this thing and not make any kind of hard and fast. Well, this sound gets accepted and this sound doesn't. And maybe let me just add to that as well. You mentioned the special needs thing. Maybe ACDA needs to start thinking about creating not just the performance track performances, but create some other, I don't know what you'll call it. And I know we have X amount of time in our conference, but maybe to talk, to highlight the choir that has kids with special needs, to highlight the choir that's, I don't know, deaf, to highlight, you know, so many, so many segments of society that ought to be highlighted. And I think we could find creative ways of doing so. So do Alan and I have your permission to approach ACDA and say that you had this idea to include that? We would love to spearhead that. I, I would I would love to. You know, and a lot of those a lot of those people in, in leadership are my friends, Dr. Andre Thomas and, and the like. I I have no qualms having that conversation with them as well. Well, just one more question before we get to the lightning round here. Do you have some lesser known composers that you wish more people knew about and were programming with their groups? I've kind of been on my Robert Nathaniel Debt Splurge of Lake, which is a name I think we all should know. Most, of, most people know him for his Listen to the Lambs, um, but Debt has so many great pieces um, to the point where I, I chose one of his pieces to do for my doctoral dissertation and it's now a piece published by GIA called The Chariot Jubilee, which I'm I'm happy that's getting a lot of play now. So check out Robert Nathaniel Debt. And and as a segue, also check out the catalog and the webpage of Marcus Garrett, who is really um you know dived in and really taken up the interest in highlighting these lesser composers. I mean Margaret Barnes has so many great uh, choral pieces, uh, William Grant still Samuel Coleridge Taylor um, Ken Burton is a living composer now out in London, England. He writes some beautiful music. So yeah, there, there's so so many composers that I think need to come back to Eucalyptus K, um, you know George Walker. All these all these guys had such amazing music that that really we should be highlighting more more often. I think. Well, Jason Max Ferdinand, thank you so much for joining us to share your insight on these important topics. Do you have time for a few lightning round questions with us? Sure. Bring it. <laughs> this is the one I'm most curious about. Is there a restaurant in the United States where you can get good traditional cuisine of Trinidad and Tobago? And if not, what's your favorite restaurant in Alabama? Favorite restaurant here in Alabama, I'm in Huntsville, Alabama, is probably, I'll give two, Walton's, which is a kind of Southern cuisine type, and then Ruchi's, which is Indian food. Uh, to find Trinidadian food here in Huntsville is a little tricky, but um, there's some places in, in Maryland, Caribbean Palace is one of my spots out in Maryland, where you can find excellent Trinidadian food from a Trinidadian couple there. It's amazing. What is your favorite book that you read to your three children when they were little? Jeez, oof. The three of them had different books, but um, Come Come Moon, that's one of our favorite books right now. I think she started to grow that one, though, but uh, that's one of our favorite books. What is the best way for a student new to your university program to make a good impression on you? Uh, just being well-disciplined and, and committed and, and, and being a team player. I kind of look for that team player quotient. I try to find it quickly. I'd rather take a student of lesser talents that's, that's hardworking, committed, disciplined, and willing to work with a team. Those make for great ensembles. 
Do you have a book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with music? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, so many of those. Um, not trying to be political or anything, but that, that book that Obama wrote is still resonating in my mind. And, and so much so just plainly because of his, the use of the language. Another book that I picked up recently was uh, the, the John Elliott Gardner um, the book on Bach that he wrote. You know, we know Gardner is a great conductor, but again, his use of the language is just simply, simply astonishing. And uh, it's, it's very riveting. So that's that's been something I just finished like last week. And finally, if you were not a musician or a teacher, try to imagine it, what career do you think you would have had? Well, I, I was going into medicine right before I switched to music. So that's easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I was right on my on the board to go to med school and I said, ah, let me follow my passion. So that's when I switched to music. And I'm glad that I did so. <laughs> well, Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand, you definitely exemplify the qualities of curiosity and empathy and optimism. And it was a real honor to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you all for having me. This was fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.